Hi, this is Jake Polonsky, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how's it going? Uh, I am literally sitting in the same room with you, so that's weird. It's weird in a good way. Weird, unmasked, in the same room that we recorded God knows how many episodes of this before the uh, the great pandemic. Yeah, probably about 75. Quite a, quite a <laughs> few. And even weirder that the entire episode will have been recorded in this room, which is how we used to do all of them. But uh, the interview with Jake Polanski is the first interview that I got to do in person since the pandemic started. I, I was actually sitting where you are, and he was sitting where I am. Woo-hoo. And and here's the magic of podcasting. Yeah. As anyone who listens to this knows, I saw the Edgar Wright documentary, The Sparks Brothers, mm-hmm. went yeah. head over heels for it, loved it, loved it, loved it, loved everything about it. I'm still listening to Sparks music in my car all the time. And our producer, Alana Cody, called me, you know, whatever it was, a few days ago and said, hey, Jake Polanski is in town today if you'd like to interview him. So this is the magic of podcasting. We put it out there like... Loved this movie. A week later, I got to talk to the DP, Jake Polanski, uh, who uh, did an amazing job shooting the film and shed a lot of light on that film and also working with Edgar Wright. Talks a bit about Bill Pope. Fascinating guy. Would you like to know how this this actually all came to be? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to know. (laughs) Okay. So Jake had a mutual friend who he wanted to buy a filter while he was in town. And uh, I got an email saying like, hey, you're you're friends with so-and-so. Do you have this filter in stock? And then I said, actually, we don't have it in stock. I'm sorry. Uh, but you know, let me connect you with our producer, Alana Cody, because uh, she might want to talk to you about their thing. And then wow. next thing you know, uh, then that, that's how it all came to be. And this only underscores the magic of podcasting to me. Like, you know, we, we, we were talking about it and then it was on your mind and then you made the connection and boom, there we were. And I, I literally wrote this email to Jake and Alana that basically said, my co-host Ben will not stop talking about this documentary that I haven't seen. <laughs> and when I first saw him, but it starts streaming today as we record, by the way, uh, when he first walked in, he said, so you're a big Sparks fan. And I'm like, I'd never heard of the Sparks before I saw your documentary. And he seemed a little like, whoa. Uh, but you know, I think that's the, uh, I think that's the magic of cinema. And I think that there's quite a few people who uh, will be discovering the Sparks brothers from, from this movie. Definitely. And uh, if I have anything to say about it, cause I think, I think it's a brilliant documentary but also what's interesting to me about Sparks is that since they've been around for like 53 years or something like that, they've been recording albums for 53 years. Whatever era of rock and roll you're into post like 19 post summer of love, they're in there, they're making stuff and they were always like five years ahead of the curve. Like they were always doing stuff that nobody was doing yet. And then like, Five years later, you'd be like, Pet Shop Boys and Erasure just totally did their their bit that they did in 1979. Wow. So were, were they Ziggy Stardust before Ziggy Stardust? Uh, I would say that they were a little bit glammy, but it was probably around the same time, like early 70s, that they were a little bit glammy. But they started experimenting with like electronic music in a way that wasn't disco-ish uh, before the 80s. Oh, Nice. All right. Well, hey, Ben, uh, what's our uh, what's our close focus today? Well, it's something that literally we had another close focus we were going to talk about. We're going to talk about Alison Mack and her three year sentence, which to me, I I feel like uh, 
rotten hell, Allison Mack, for what you did. I, I hope that jail uh, teaches you a lesson and you don't uh, do any more weird sex cult That's stuff. That's the Nixi- Nexium sex cult. Nexium, right? yeah, yeah okay. the, which, which spawned uh, uh, one great podcast, one pretty good documentary series, and one really slow documentary series. Oh, I'll okay. let everyone fill, that, uh, fill in the gap themselves. <laughs> which is and, which. And supposedly there's another season of the really slow one coming our way, and I'm like, I don't need to see the process of you people getting ready to uh, confront a guy. Uh, all right, so what's, so what's our actual close Well, focus? you brought up something that sparked me because I didn't even know it existed, but there are Nielsen ratings for streaming services now. And one of the things about Netflix, like a, a friend of mine actually worked on the reboot of Arrested Development when it was on Netflix. And she was telling me that none of their side knew the numbers. Like nobody knows the numbers of viewers, how long viewers watch, how many viewers watch. And it gives, starting with Netflix, but then rippling out to all the other streamers, it gives them enormous, unbelievable power because there's no way for anyone to know how popular their show is. So if you're making, let's say, WandaVision, because that's one of the ones that actually came up, you don't know if WandaVision is the biggest hit that's ever been on Disney Plus and is blowing everyone away. (laughs) Or or 12 nerds in their basement were watching it and that was it. And you don't know if it gets renewed. You don't know if you got renewed by the, you were clinging on to life by your fingernails or if you you know blew everybody away. So streaming Nielsen's, which uh, you and I have both learned now, are a little controversial in how they operate. But you know the Nielsen ratings have been around for I don't know exactly how long, but they've a been a long around, time. Uh, yeah. yeah, like that was the gold uh, standard. A, a Nielsen family would literally have uh, you know in the 1960s, 1970s, they would have a diary and they would manually write down what they watched and how long it was for, and they would send that in. And that's what all of our TV ratings have been based on. And over the last whatever 20 years, it's become a little bit more automated and electronic. But to do it for streaming gives the TV creators a little bit better of a picture. Even I would say even if it's imperfect it's better than what they were getting which was just nothing mm. i'd rather have some information than zero information but as uh, we saw in our research on it, it doesn't necessarily count if you watch the show on your phone or your ipad or anything but a television and i'm like well that's a little short-sighted because a lot of people are watching this stuff on their phones there, there's a really interesting story though in the hollywood reporter about netflix canceling jupiter's legacy which was a superhero series and they canceled it and then a, a, a day later and, and you know they didn't just cancel it i guess they like canceled it and like some executives got fired it was a whole it was a whole to do it sounds like but then uh, the day, uh, right after this is announced uh, nielsen comes out and shows that it's the number one original series on netflix is that they had that many views and or that many minutes of, of watching of that. The number one thing on Netflix was Jupiter's Legacy, but it, it was completely like shut down. And you, right before we started recording, you, you mentioned, well, the only reason for a show not to be renewed is not because of ratings, but uh, it's certainly... Yeah, there's any number of reasons. It could have gone way over budget. The, the executive producers or the show the showrunner could have clashed with Netflix. You know, there could have been contractual things with the actors. You, you'll never know... I mean, you will know why a show is canceled if, if someone goes public, but if no one wants to go public, you're never going to know. But this really kind of changes the game, too, for the production creative entities that are responsible for putting these shows on the air or, or on the streaming service. If now we can get some sort of transparency of knowing how well something does, they can negotiate for higher paychecks. They can yeah. negotiate for, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens with Nielsen, but essentially they have it broken down by the millions of minutes that people are, are viewing this content. So, uh, yeah, it's inter- interesting to see. There was a headline that Loki w- w- was number three this week. So, you know. 
pretty amazing. What's frustrating to me about this, too, is that you know at these companies, at all the streaming companies, Amazon Prime and Netflix and Disney Plus, yada, 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 they don't just have numbers. They they know the exact numbers and exact demographics of who's watching what, for how long they're watching, what else are they watching. Like, they know everything, and they could just freely publish those. So any ratings that Nielsen does are going to be sort of... Reverse engineered, hacked together, because they created they created situations where they could create a sample of the approximate demographics. But of course, the the, the streamers, they all know. They know they, exactly what They know is. everything about you. They probably know your, your browsing history. They know everything. But what they don't know is what their competitors know. So it's interesting that a third party is going to basically kind of like lift the skirt, so to speak, on, on, all, the, <laughs> all, on all the secrets That's that is going on. Really dirty way to put it, but sure. <laughs> it, it, you know, okay, I could have said kilt, but I mean, it's like, it kind of depends. Lift on, that kilt. <laughs> you know, you, you don't know what's under there. You yeah. don't know what, what's, what you, it's going to be a surprise. So that's very, very interesting. So I'm going to keep my eyes on that. I think that that's, uh, it's, it's a, a big development and I don't think it's been going on for very long. Like I could, we couldn't find an article about it that was more than a few months old, right? No, it, it yeah, it seems to be pretty new and, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't wait to, to, to yeah. follow this my, story some more. I, I'm guessing that they're going to figure out a way to check how you stream on literally anything you stream on. If you're watching it on your Apple watch, they're going to know it pretty soon. Yeah, and, and Nielsen doesn't have to have 100% of people. They just have to have a relatively decent sample size, which is how they've always done it. And I think that people are going, you know, third-party uh, you know, auditors are going to say, yeah, you know what, this is as good as anything else that's out there. And their plan is to make that information available. That's, that's going to that's gonna change things, shake things up a bit. Right on. So uh, let's go ahead and get into our interview with Jake Polanski. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm here now for the first time live and in person with a cinematographer since the pandemic began. So for the last 16 months, every interview we've done has been over Zoom. And I'm sitting across from someone whose work I have been gushing about for the last uh, two weeks. Jake Polanski, who shot the Sparks Brothers documentary that Edgar Wright directed. Just an, an amazing and brilliant piece of work. So thank you. And, and you came in here. You're like you're leaving the country tonight, right? Well, actually, I'm going to Chicago now suddenly because I'm going to shoot something there. But yes, I'm, I could leave in town tomorrow. So. <laughs> I just, yeah. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I mean, Alana, our producer, reached out to me this morning and she was like, could you interview Jake Polanski today? And I was spending the first part of the day chasing after my three-year-old son in a park. And I was like, I can absolutely do it. It's a huge thrill. And I have to say just congratulations about that documentary. It's amazing work. I've been telling everyone who will listen to me that they need to see it. I saw it on the big screen, one of the first movies I saw out of the pandemic. So congratulations. Yeah. Uh, when we talk to people who did documentary, like this is the kind of documentary that relies heavily on archival footage, which obviously you didn't shoot, and a lot of like very interestingly animated reenactments and imaginings of things. And I'm curious, how much of a hand did you have in that kind of stuff? So basically, the way that this all came about and the way that I became involved in it was in April 2018, Edgar, who's somebody that I'd known for years, posted a picture of himself on Instagram with Ron and Russell Mayle. Yeah. And I'd been a big Sparks fan since 2006, when I'd really randomly seen them play at a festival, and I'd never heard of them. I mean, I'd never heard any of their music or yeah. knew who they were. But there were two acts headlining this festival in England called The Big Chill. One of them was Lily Allen, and we definitely didn't want to see her, and the other one was this band called Sparks. So we thought, well, we'll go and see, yeah, yeah, yeah. you never heard of them. 
And what they started doing when they were touring was to play the whole of the album that they just released from beginning to end, then go and take a little break and then come out and do a kind of greatest hits set. And this is what they did uh, at this festival. And, uh, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of people who clearly didn't know who they were either. And there was this hilarious sort of confusion for the first bit of like, wow, who are these guys? And then a kind of growing enjoyment and thinking, actually, this is quite good. And then by the time they went off after the first part of the set, um, everyone was sort of really into it. When they came back out and played this bunch of songs that, again, I I was hearing them all for the first time and I just... I couldn't believe it. So when I saw this picture that Edgar posted, I was like, wow. I instantly sent him a message saying, did you really meet them? And he said, yeah. Not only have I met them, they've asked me to make a documentary about them. Do you want to shoot it? I said, yeah, sure. Wow. So, you know, like my relationship with Edgar is kind of interesting because before he made any movies, he made a pretty famous TV show in the UK called Spaced. After Spaced, he spent a bit of time making music videos and commercials. And that was when I kind of came into contact with him and. We shot a few bunch of jobs together. You know, Edgar was clearly a sort of majorly talented guy. And, you know, we made a bunch of really fun jobs together. He was always really out to experiment, do something that he wanted to see if he could do. So like we made a video for this band called The Blue Tones for a song called After Hours, which is a sort of Bugs and Malone tribute. And it's all, it's all one shot. Um, oh, wow. And we sort of stayed in touch over the years. And I, when I saw he was making The World's End in the UK, I sent him a message saying, hey, I knew he was working with Bill Pope, who obviously is, you know, legend. Yeah. So I was like, I'm not going to shoot this thing. But I was like, hey, you know, do you guys have a second unit? Do you need anybody to come and work on it? And again, it was one of those sort of timely things where he just said, hey, we were just talking about that. Yeah, great. Come and meet me and Bill tomorrow. And the next thing I knew, I was, you know, spent a few months working on that. And then, That's awesome. you know, just... Yeah, I, 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 the first credit of yours that I'd seen where you'd worked with him was that, because, you know, a yeah, lot of times... But, I mean, we'd actually known each other from, like, 2000. Oh, wow. So, basically, the, what happened was, the first thing was they were playing a show, Sparks playing a show in London, and we basically set up a kind of, like, classic multi-camera live show film of that. We shot that show, and then I sat down with Edgar, and he kind of said, look, there's going to be a lot of interviews. I want them to all have a like a look. I want them to all have a sort of visual continuity. And what I really want them to look like is the cover of their Big Beat album from 1976. And for those who don't know that album cover very well, it's a black and white portrait of them shot by Irving Penn. So it's you know, sort of a large format black and white picture. So I kind of went away and I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, like what's the closest thing that we can get that's going to kind of have that quality? So I kind of thought, well, you know, interestingly, Red have a, a monochrome version of their large format Monstro camera. I wonder whether we could have a look at that. And as it happened, an old friend of mine who used to work for Kodak, a guy called David Webb, was now running Red in Europe in the UK. So I rang him up and I said, hey, we've got this project that we're starting to do and quite interested in using this camera and seeing what it will do. And they were like very enthusiastic from the beginning. And, you know, we went and tested it. It looked really great very nice image quality. You know, it's a camera which is just a monochrome sensor. There's no... I've, I've always been interested about, like, I, don't, I think you might be the first person who's shot on that who I've spoken to. And I was talking... Who was it? I was talking to someone recently who'd done something black and white, and they were talking about how they prefer to shoot in color and, and then... Yeah. Well, here's saturate. the thing. Like, the reason people prefer to do that is that when you shoot in black and white, you only have grayscale. You only have tones. So mm. it's much more difficult to grade it if you don't like what you did. But the truth was that basically Edgar's idea was he wanted everybody to wear black. We set up, well, we could have created a template 
a kind of two camera setup with specific lenses that Panavision got involved and also were helping us out. So we used these large format Primo Artiste lenses, which are very beautiful lenses to use. And essentially we could recreate this setup anywhere. And so it meant that we could make all the interviews look exactly the same, which is what the aim was. So, uh, and then actually we did two shoots out here in Los Angeles and one shoot in New York. And we also shot a few live shows here in Los Angeles. You know, we did some sort of stuff with fans. And I actually, I was using the Fuji X-T3 for that, which was actually surprisingly good at low light cinematography. I was very impressed. Oh, nice. But, you know, I kind of had it sitting in my bag and I was kind of like, well, let's see what it can do. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so, you know, and I just want to acknowledge that there are a few other DPs involved in this project, like Gabe Elder was somebody who covered the Mexico festival footage that you see. Mm. But, you know, my job was to sort of oversee the whole thing and, and you know, basically just to make sure that... Because the other thing that we were doing, you know, all the interviews are delivered directly to the lens. So we were using this uh, device called the Interatron. That was my next... Yeah, I, w- I was interested to know if you did that or if you used yeah. the uh, iDirect, the... Uh... Well, it's the same thing, basically. I mean, yeah. Well, the Interatron is like a teleprompter and an iDirect is just a yeah, mirror. Well, some places we got an Interatron, but the iDirect basically is a, is a way that, you know, Edgar could sit right next to me, but through this sort of periscope of mirrors, he's reflected right into the axis of the lens so that everybody who's being interviewed can look directly into the lens and actually see him, which is a really clever device. I think it's Errol Morris's invention. The Interotron. He he created the Interotron with two like actual teleprompters. He would like be in another room interviewing people. And the iDirect is basically, as far as I know, it's two I, mirrors in a box. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm being overly modest. I own one of them, but uh, but it's sort of like uh, if you took a teleprompter and put it sideways and then just stuck a mirror in the back. But I've used it before, and yeah, I mean those are amazing, and you, you get such an intimate interview. Was there a specific lens, like a focal length, that you thought worked well for the kind of intimacy you were trying to create with those? Yeah, interviews? well, I mean, basically, we had like a the A camera straight on was a fifty mil. I mean, this is and this is in large format, so you know, fifty mil is wider than what you think a fifty mil being like a super thirty five sensor world. Yeah. And then we had a sort of three quarter B camera that was a sixty five mil. And when we had two people, like when we interviewed Rod and Russell, we had a third camera with another 65. So I could kind of get two kind of raking closer singles at the same time as a two shot. You know, so it was very simple. You know, it was very simple. But because we knew there was going to be so much material and like you said, all the archive and, you know, it's a long film. I'll warn people who are about to maybe watch it. But everybody who I've shown it to, whether they know the band really well or don't, it is a really compelling story. And I mean, you know, for me, I mean, you know, I, I loved their music before I met them, but you know, they're an amazing couple of guys who have an incredible story, which is, you know, they, they basically had this unbelievably huge success at the beginning of their careers that kind of petered out and petered out, but they just kept reinventing themselves, kept going. And now they're having this real like second moment in the limelight, which is in their seventies. Yeah, doing but, no small part to this film, I'm sure. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, to be fair, the albums that they've been releasing since Little Beethoven, they have been you know successful albums that have sold well and you know got radio play, and the guys are in amazing shape. They're still touring. You know, they got through being in the music business in the seventies and eighties without taking any drugs or drinking. So they're ridiculously well preserved. I mean, wow. And you know, I don't know if you've been lucky. Well, you probably haven't seen them live for real, but no, I, I mean, I've seen them live about ten times, and they're great, great performers. 
and always have been. Yeah, and um, I can I can tell from I mean again like I've just kind of gone down a rabbit hole of, of watching Spark stuff ever since I saw your documentary, and so I've watched a lot of their live performances. Well, the one you know the one to really enjoy is that Croydon Fairfield Hall one from 1975, which is where Russell's wearing that orange boiler suit in the film you see the girl who comes on stage and kind of stands next to Ron really uncomfortably and like we found her. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was so sweet to kind of reconnect people from the 70s seeing themselves and, and you know, yeah. and then the other these people still love the band. So, you know, it, it was very touching. But also I think for Ron and Russell, it was a kind of real validation of everything that they've, they've just really just kept on going. What kind of really was meaningful to me about it was, you know, I think for everybody, like whatever it is that you do, you can always see somebody who's more successful than you or mm. maybe better at it or whatever, you know, it's like, I'm never gonna be Roger Deakins, you know, I do what I do. And I think what was interesting about their career is that they've made a real positive thing out of the fact that they've been able to keep going and being creative without people expecting them to do a particular thing. And they've sort of shown that it's okay. You, you know, as long as you've got the freedom to keep creating, then it's all good. I'm curious about working with Edgar Wright because I've always thought about there's kind of a, a style in comedy that came of age maybe around the time Edgar Wright started making a lot of movies and that was sort of the Judd Apatow school of like shoot a pile of feathers and make a chicken out of it later and I always feel like Edgar Wright's stuff is like a perfect puzzle that fits together like when I think about Scott Pilgrim versus the world or any there's just an, an enormous amount of visual construction that goes into his stuff but by the very nature of making a documentary you are kind of shooting a pile of feathers and making a chicken out of it in post to some degree because you don't know what you're going to get in all your interviews well, I mean look, you know I mean the thing is that Edgar does really like visual comedy as you any, anybody who's watched his films will know and you know like we did a couple of little vignettes that you see in the film but you know the thing about Edgar is that he's extremely knowledgeable about music and movies and he's fucking hard working yeah. you know and there are some people that you work with and you kind of think mate you know you've just been lazy or you know come on let's you know let's put a bit, put, put, bit more effort in Edgar is the hardest working guy I think I've ever come across mm-hmm. you know like when he's making a movie it's like everything all day the only thing he's thinking about. When I was working on The World's End, we had this sort of schedule structured around when he could come and join us because he didn't want to not see anything that we were doing. So he'd be shooting like an entire day with Bill, main unit. Then like we'd come in a bit early and we'd maybe do an hour with him before they started. At lunch, he wouldn't go and have lunch. He'd come and hang out with us for an hour and do like whatever we were mopping up that they needed done. Uh, and then maybe we'd do some more at the end of the day and he would stay and then like we did some work on the weekends you know he worked seven days a week for the last month of that movie Mm -hmm. I don't really know any other director that I've come across who really puts that level of effort into what they do well, and I think it shows, and I think, you know, his work is exemplary in that way. And I'm not, by the way, I'm not, like, saying anything negative about sort of an improvisational kind of a Judd Apatow thing. I just, like, I always appreciate when I watch an Edgar Wright movie that I feel like every second and every part of the frame and everything is, is has been, like, yeah. selected well, and curated. I mean, I'll tell you, on the, on the World's End, it was funny because I did a lot of those little cutaways of... You know, he likes those little whip pans or little details. So, you know, like you see somebody slam a car door and, you know, the camera's got to move in a particular, very sort of yeah. specific way. And I mean, you know, some of those stuff, you know, some of that stuff, I'd go off and like, you know, we'd shoot 25 versions of it. And like, he'd watch them all and go, yeah, quite like the third to last one, but 
can you just try and get it just a little bit faster than that or you know I, I mean and that was a shot an insert of a door closing yeah you know but it was like but i mean it's like the punctuation mark at the end of his well, sentence exactly and i think it was like one of the things that i kind of brought to that was i said um you know i think we should do some fun stuff with when they're pouring all the beer you know because they go basically in the world's end it's five friends go on this pub crawl pub crawl for those who don't know is like you basically just go from one bar to another getting completely hammered and these friends go back to the town where they grew up which is famous for having these 12 pubs and um it turns out the town's been taken over by aliens. Anyway, I thought, well, you know, like we, because we're going to be repeating all these things, and you know, it's like this Edgar thing of like these little repeated details. So I said, let's get a phrase in so that we can just get some really funky, cool angles of you know, like looking straight. Oh, is that how you boot. got that? Yeah. Oh wow. So you know, and like I kind of said, uh, we should have a look at this. Like, I, I've always wondered if people were still shooting on those things because it's mm. such an insane lens. What you can do with it. It's great. Well, I mean, now, especially with digital cameras being so sensitive, like the problem was always just that you needed a ton of light to yeah. use them. But, uh, you know, now something like a Venice 2500 ASA, you could put it, just shoot with it the whole time if you wanted. I saw a presentation by the guy who created that. Right, Jim like, Frazier, yeah. I mean, 20 years yeah, ago. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a really brilliant invention. And, you know, there's a few different versions. There's the T-Rex Superscope does the same thing, basically. Yeah. And there's a few other kind of pro boroscope type lenses the skater scope but i know the exact shots from the movie that you're describing you know because the second you said what it is is that it's this thing of like making something small look big and feel quite three-dimensional it does that's what that particular piece of equipment's really good at i think and it was interesting because edgar sort of was undertaking this project as well as his new movie last night in soho which he shot which looks amazing yeah you know while he was doing the post-production, he was literally walking from one edit suite where they were working on Sparks to another one where they were working on Last Night in Soho and oh, wow. essentially making two movies at the same time. So, I, I mean, I don't know how he didn't, his head didn't explode, basically. We had Ron Howard on, and he, had, he was making a documentary about uh, Paradise, California, burning down called Rebuilding Paradise at the same time he was doing Hillbilly Elegy. And he was in the same situation where, like, he had two editing teams. Yeah, I think mean, it was just one of these things that I think, you know, MRC, who financed the film, had agreed to let him go and, and make it and it was just like that we just got to go and do it I mean you just the opportunity was there and you know like these guys are old you, just, yeah. you know you just don't know I mean they're, they're in great shape but hey you know yeah. you just want to make sure you get this thing done you want to get it done yeah now well and and I guess my question was more about like I see his work as being that of extreme precision which is something you're definitely confirming for me a documentary by its nature is less of a precision thing because you can't yeah you don't don't know exactly where it's going to go 100% of the time no but I mean I think first of all that's why he wanted to have this visual continuity in the interview so there was at least something that we controlled (laughs) and and also I mean fact you know basically it is a chronological it's pretty chronological story he didn't you know there's other things I've worked on that, you know, had a more discontinuous structure, but it really does go from the beginning mm. to the end. So it does it does have a pretty clear timeline. Uh, I was going to ask, like, what does intimidating look like? Because I, I always, especially in the commercial world, you hear stories about people like Joe Pitka or whatever that are like legendary in their, yeah. in their, wow, how did you? Uh, well, yeah, you know, I mean, here's the thing. It's like, as you get older, you realize a lot of that arrogance and unpleasantness is usually insecurity and masquerading as something else. And it's actually a little bit tedious. And again, you know, just to sort of come back to the Edgar thing, it's like, you know, what I like about Edgar is that he's 
I don't think he's an, well, he isn't an arrogant human being. He just really loves what he does. He's yeah. really passionate about it. And, you know, as a DP, personally, I'm much more stimulated by working with somebody like I mean, as I think anybody would be. Because, you know, you, you like what they do and you respect them. And you sort of think, right, you know, I really want to deliver what the thing is that you want to achieve. Because it's going to be great. Well, and I imagine it opens up a door for collaboration. Where even though he clearly has a strong idea of what he's going for, how to get there might, might be open well, to think, several. You know, I think that was why he really developed this relationship with Bill because you know it's really nice to see them working together. I mean, I like Bill a lot. He's, I mean, you know, he shot the Matrix trilogy for those who don't know, I and mean, Team America World Police, and Team America World Police, which is a fabulous movie. I mean, he's a very talented guy, and you know, again, it's it's always interesting to see these people and see how they present themselves, how they work on set. You know, Bill's got a lot of energy. I mean, he's an older guy now, but he obviously really enjoys working with Edgar and when you watch them together it's really nice you sort of think wow that's a good pair and I remember you know when we worked on The World's End I was uh, I think Sam Raimi set up the meeting between him and Edgar I believe he shot Army of Darkness for Sam Raimi yeah yeah, so basically Sam yeah I I think Sam's a friend of Edgar's and Edgar was going to be doing Scott Pilgrim he asked about Bill and Sam engineered this meeting and Bill said you know at that meeting I knew that he was like a really remarkable storyteller and I was going to do everything I could to get on that movie and I'm not going to let him go oh that's sweet and uh, yeah good for him uh, yeah so just to go back to I'm just doing a very quick life history I guess so <laughs> I, I thought well you know I'm going to try and get some second unit experience on bigger movies and and just go back to doing what I was doing and then in 2011 I got sent this script for a thing called Black Mirror uh, which at the time was a brand new show being made by a little broadcaster in the UK called Channel 4, who are quite famous for doing quite outrageous and interesting, commissioning interesting stuff. I read this script called The National Anthem, which for those people who don't know, is it's called The Pilot. I mean, it's just the first episode of Black Mirror that was ever made. And it's about uh, a fictionalised member of the royal family gets kidnapped... Okay. And the ransom demand that's made is that the Prime Minister, live on television, has to fuck a pig. (laughs) Now, I read this script and I just thought, fucking hell, this is, I can't believe someone's going to make this. I remember watching that because people have been like, this is like the Twilight Zone. And then I watched that episode and I was like, I can imagine that this might be what it felt like to watch the Twilight Zone when it first went on the air. But this is not the Twilight Zone. Yeah, you know, what was really interesting about that project was... When you read the script, it was really funny. It was a really funny read, like yeah. you laughed. So I went in for a meeting about this project and, and we, we kind of all had the same thing to say, which is like, the only way this thing's gonna work is to make it 100% like, not like a documentary, but just like it's a real thing. It's a real thing happening. Mm-hmm. And that's what's gonna make it really powerful. And luckily I got hired to do the job and that's exactly what we did. The interesting thing about it, and it's a sort of weird thing I've never really seen again, is that, like I said, very funny script. If you find the screenplay and read it, you, you really laugh. But when you actually <laughs> film it, when we filmed it, when you watch the things actually happening, it's horrific. I mean, it's like, <laughs> the, I, I do think that the last 15 minutes of that is just the most devastatingly <laughs> awful thing to watch. <laughs> this poor guy played by Rory Kinnear, who's a fabulous actor, basically just having his life destroyed. Yeah. It's not really funny. I mean, it's a very, you know, Charlie Brooker, who created Black Mirror and has written most of it, has a very dark sense of humour, as people, I'm sure, know. So that kind of kickstarted just going back into that world a little bit. 
Well, that you're also like roaring into one of the. I mean, that was a water cooler show when when Black Mirror came out. Everyone was talking about it, and I'm, I'm, yeah, well, I'm, it was like before Netflix were involved, so it was actually kind of quite a little low budget show. That first season only had three episodes, and uh, I was not aware of that. Yeah. Okay, I, th- I thought it was made originally for Netflix. No, no, no. They they got involved. It might have been the second season. Might have been even later, mm. but. That National Anthem episode won an international Emmy, sort of achieved a lot of traction. Uh, uh, real quick, by the way, uh, do you have enough time to talk about Billions? Yeah, or? yeah, because I think that's quite a funny story. I was working on a TV show called Endeavor, and one day I got this email from my American agent. She said, oh, these guys have been in touch about this new Showtime show uh, with Paul Giamatti and Damien Lewis called Billions, and they'd like to have a chat with you. And I kind of was like, yeah, right. Of course they do. That's funny. <laughs> but she said, no, no, they, they, they'd want to do a Skype call with you. Could you do it later today? I was like, yeah, sure. So they sent, they had shot the pilot. They sent me that. A couple of days later, I get on the computer with Brian Koppelman and David Levine, who are the two guys who created Billions. And, you know, one of these funny things where we start talking and basically they fucking loved that Black Mirror episode. They just thought it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. And they just really liked how it looked. Wow. So, And I, having seen both, I can find, like, not any similarity between that Black Mirror episode and Billions. They they look so different. Yeah, well, I think, I don't know. I think it's just a certain kind of classicism to it yeah. and it's not showy. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but we, we were chatting away. And after about five minutes, I thought, this is kind of weird. They actually sound like they're serious about this. And after about ten minutes, it was they were kind of talking as if they just offered me the job. And I sort of hung up the call and thought, well, I hadn't really given this much thought, but that's weird. It looks like they actually want me to go and do it. So a couple of weeks later, I'm flying out to New York and, you know, shooting 11 episodes of season one and ended up shooting 27 episodes of Billions and directing one. And it was just the most amazing experience for me, particularly for one reason, which is that in the American TV system, it has changed a bit, but a lot of shows, they only do one episode blocks we never do that it was very rare in the UK that you do that because it's insane I mean from a logistics point of view you're scheduling 10 days at a time but basically what it means is that you know you're on a project it's got the same actors it's got the same crew it's got the same base the set same sets the same basic conditions but every two weeks only one thing is changing and that's nominally the person in charge as a new director so you know I got to work with 20 different directors it was just really interesting because it was it was it was a bit like a really sort of interesting film school because you just kind of saw a bunch of different people come in and do the same thing in different ways. You know, we had John Singleton, we had Neil Berger, we I mean we had Reed Morano before she did Handmaid's Tale. So it was really like in it was a really great experience. You know, that job has an amazing cast. You know, Damien Lewis and Paul Giamatti both incredibly nice, hardworking guys. Yeah, yeah. And it's fun watching them square off. It's fun watching all the characters square off yeah, in that you show. Yeah, everybody in it is good. But like when I when I think about that Black Mirror episode, not to dwell on this too much, but like I think of something that's dark and shadowy. Maybe if I went back and watched it again, I would realize that it, that that's just how I'd remembered it impressionistically. But when I think about Billions, it's like lavish locations and bright light. Yeah, I mean, you know, it wasn't like there were a lot of rules uh, in the Billions world. Some became into being uh, after a while, but it's a show which was really about, you know, great acting and lots of 
fun situations. Yeah, and, and um, great writing too. The writing is just yeah. spot on. And it, it was a really fabulous thing to be involved in. Great crew. I mean, we really lucked out in that, especially for the first couple of seasons. I mean, they managed to hire pretty much the top gaffer and key gripper on the East Coast. So um, Jay Fortune and um, George Patsos, who are both legendary characters in the sort of New York film world. They'd never worked in television. But I think they'd spent so much time on the road and they got to a certain stage in their life where actually they thought, well, you know, we'll give it a go, see what it's like. And they're still working on the show five seasons later. Wow, that's um, amazing. And I was just really, really privileged to work with a great bunch of people who became really good friends. And, you know, I'd never done the same job twice, let alone three or four times. I mean, it's not, you know, it's quite unusual for a DP. I mean, you know, now that there's all these long running TV shows, it's a little bit more common. They've kind of taken the place, not, not that independent films aren't still being made, but, you know, like indie film in the, in the 90s and the aughts seems to have been replaced by premium television. They're telling the kinds of stories those movies would have told. Yeah, possibly. I mean, it's just, it's, look, it's a great time to be in that world because there's tons of really interesting work being done. And, you know, it's kind of funny because it's gone from like TV being like the kind of, well, you know, we don't get to do movies, but I guess we'll work in TV too. Yeah. Like TV is really where all the most interesting stuff's happening and everybody from, take your pick, everybody wants to work in TV now. Yeah. So I kind of came back from doing a couple of years of Billions and I worked on another Black Mirror episode with David Slade, the interactive uncle Bandersnatch, which was a really brilliant. fabulous piece of work. Holy yeah. crap, is that a brilliant episode too. Yeah, that was, I, I, that was amazing. It's the kind of thing that you go through and watch it several times because you can... You yeah, know, and again, I just want to acknowledge, like, I co... There's quite a lot to say about that project, but what was kind of funny was that, you know, obviously no one had never really made something like... I mean, someone actually has, but it was really bad. But nobody really made an interactive piece of work like this. When I got sent the script, it was 165 pages long and it was impossible to... I mean, it was impossible to read. It was yeah. impossible to read. Yeah, to like choose your own adventure. If, if you read it from beginning to end, it didn't make any sense. And if you followed the story and and you you not ever be able to read the whole thing. They were supposed to have three weeks to shoot it. I mean, and when they actually sat down and scheduled it, it, it worked out at like seven weeks. Of, I mean, minimum. It's like four or five hours of material yeah, in, yeah, in, that, in that project. And that project was... It was actually shot on a ton of formats. Alexa 65, 35mm, 16mm... Wow, cheap video really? cameras uh you know it was like everything everything was in that but I again like, i feel like we could do a full interview just about bandersnatch yeah, because I it's, won't say it's such an insane it, it was uh yeah. yeah that was a lot of fun it, it, and nobody's it's it's funny because when someone does something that's so groundbreaking you expect a lot of people to copy it but i don't really feel like anyone's tried to copy it well i think you know there is a department in netflix so they've tried they've, they've sort of tried to kind of develop some other projects that will use the technology now that it works you know the thing that's brilliant about bandersnatch is that the content is about the form because basically (laughs) you know it's about a guy who thinks he's not in control of his life and he's not because we are yeah and that's just a really fucking funny idea i mean (laughs) very 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 well written and again you know charlie really smashed that one it was it was it was a really very satisfying thing to kind of be involved in not least because I mean I you know I had a ZX Spectrum when I was a kid I loved all those games and uh, I used to read know. the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure novels when I was a kid yeah 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 that too so it was that um, yeah, was a lot of fun well um, anyway I know that we're running out of time with you thank you so much for coming out and, yeah, it was a pleasure and, and thank uh, you maybe for we can maybe we can get you on uh, when you have some downtime between projects on Zoom and do a, a longer interview about some of your other work 
But before we go, where can people find you online if they want to see your work or interact with you? Oh, well, I mean, like my website is just my name.com, jakepolonsky.com. I'm not very imaginative, so my Instagram is just jakepolonsky. So that's like, <laughs> and, you know, there's not a lot of Polonskis out there, so you just got to spell it right, that's all. Thank you so much for coming out here on Short Notice. It's a, it's a pleasure to meet you, and uh, anyone listening to the sound of my voice, like, run, don't walk, and check out the Sparks documentary, The Sparks Yeah, Brothers. please do, because it, it really is, a, it's a lot of fun. If you don't know anything about them, and you like music, I guarantee you'll find something to enjoy in it. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. So that was Jake Polanski. Jake, thank you so much for coming down here on short notice. And Ilya, thank you for making it happen. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I just played a little tiny part. Really, the uh, credit goes to everyone else who, who made it happen. I, I, I couldn't supply the filter. So. <laughs> and now, short ends. Anyway, so so Ben, it is time for our famed short end part of the show. What is your pet obsession this week? What are you into? Uh, something that I, I think a lot of our listeners might enjoy is Quentin Tarantino, not someone who's afraid of microphones necessarily, but he did this past week the longest interview I've ever listened to with him with Mark Marin on the WTF podcast. And he gets very, very, very real. And he talks a lot about... He talks about some personal stuff. He talks a lot about his filmmaking habits. He talks a lot about his theater, movie theater ownership. He talks a bit about the new Beverly and stuff like that. But what was most interesting to me was him kind of talking about his childhood and how he fell in love with movies. And he's uh, he grew up sort of in the L.A. area, but he was more in like El Segundo and Torrance. Torrance, yeah, yeah. yeah. But so he talks about going, like he and his stepdad would go to Marina del Rey to see movies and, and stuff like that. And uh, because Tarantino is such a big personality. I felt like it felt the most like having a real conversation with him of any interview. Cause you know, when you see him on the tonight show or you see him on, you know, wherever on, on, on these panels or whatever he does, he has a big personality and I think he's trying to broadcast it. And one of the things that I think Mark Marin is great at doing as an interviewer is just getting people to be very real and very personal and it's not like it's not dragging you through like horrible mud although one of the stories he talks about is his dad who's a crazy person he didn't know his own dad like he grew up without his dad and then his dad after he got famous his dad kind of comes out of, out of the woodwork and starts seeking him out and actually starts acting in movies his name is tony tarantino hmm. and uh and if you look him up on imdb you'll see him and he talks about the one time he ever met his own dad Oh, weird. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a really good interview. And again, I think if you're a fan of Tarantino's, it's and I am definitely a fan of Tarantino's. It's it's an amazing interview. It's amazing to hear this long of an interview with him. You're a fan of Tony Tarantino? No, I, I would say I'm a fan of Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> and by the way, like when he started working professionally, he chose to use his, that name, which was his real name, because his stepdad had a different name. All right. Gotcha. Well, hey, it uh, sounds interesting. I think I'll have to Google that podcast and uh, check yeah, it out. Yeah, WTF is always a good podcast. They actually had Steve. I've, I've never heard of it. I'm <laughs> Sorry. He also had Steven Soderbergh. I haven't listened to the C Steven Soderbergh one yet, but someone said that he talks about the weird lens that Steven Soderbergh uses in his newest movie a lot. So Interesting. So I, I'm interested to hear. I, I, I mean, Steven Soderbergh, uh, as, as you and I have discussed, is someone who we'd love to get on here at one point because he, since Schizopolis, which I think is like mid-90s, he has DP'd every single one of his own movies. Yes, uh, under the alias of Peter Andrews. Yeah, which is, I think, his father's name. Yeah, I think I think so, too. Uh, well, 
I, I don't know how weird that lens is that he chose. It looks, looks like an extremely wide-angle anamorphic lens, probably a, a more of a vintage I, one. Here's what I will say, and again, this has nothing to do with anything we're talking about here. No less than two people texted me and asked me if I'd seen the movie because they wanted to ask what the deal with that lens was. Hmm, interesting, because they, they didn't like the look of that lens? I'm guessing because it grabbed their attention. Let's yeah. just put it that way. Okay, got it. I think in one case they didn't like it, but they were afraid that there was something wrong with their television. No, nothing wrong with the TV. It is just uh, an old lens that uh, is being used for effect. Well, I look forward to seeing that movie just so I can understand uh, what the hubbub is all about. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of this week? My pet obsession is actually it's a new product that has come out from the fine people over at Bright Tangerine. Bright Tangerine, they make a device called the Left Field, and the Left Field is essentially a platform for camera cages. So you can use essentially the same platform for a number of different cameras, and it's got sort of a a sliding dovetail, an ARRI-compatible sliding dovetail, and it's got some you know, different different functionality, but you invest in one thing and you don't have to necessarily re- keep rebuying hardware. Every time a new camera comes out, you can get like a different plate or maybe a couple of pieces and voila, the old stuff that you have all kind of work together. And I have to say, they might have been slightly influenced by me because of course I did that several years ago uh, with, <laughs> with hot red say. cameras. Yeah, it's, it's very, it's very, um, <clears throat> it, it's very uh, similar to something that, that I did. But uh, of course, we didn't keep doing it. We did it in a very sort of like micro manufacturing and they're, they're doing it in sort of a, a grand way. So in celebration of that, actually, we decided to make a PL support for our mount, our Hot Rod PL. We have a new version of that. And it works on the same cameras. Like for for example, they made this cage, the left field for the Komodo. And they made a bunch of different sort of uh, support foots for different copycat PL mounts out there. And uh, they could have made one for ours, but I decided to make one uh, you know, ourselves, and then we can actually sell it for, for very little money. We get to set the price on that. So we did that. So we can actually put our support foot, and it ties into their cage, and you can use the Hot Rod PL on your red Komodo Bright Tangerine kit, so to speak. So I, it's probably the best cage that exists out there on the market right now. And now you can put our PL mount on that camera and you can get a proper support and you don't have to have something that works with rods and it's all going to be available like uh, within the next week or so. We're very, very close to having the support done. Every other part of it already exists. Wow. Yeah. That sounds cool. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, you you of course have to get all these other parts, but maybe, maybe a week is a little too soon. Maybe it's more like three weeks, but it's imminent. We have, we have the whole the whole piece done. I signed off on it, and it is in manufacturing already, which is great. Excellent. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, pretty happy about it. So, Ilya, uh, where can people find you online if they want to uh, check out your wares, especially this new uh, this new PL mount that you, you're... Well, the PL mount is available on the, the website. It's hotridecameras.com. And, uh, of course, the support piece, it's not quite there yet, but you'll see it probably in early August. And uh, we'll probably do a special, too. So if you buy a Komodo or a PL mount, you can get the support, and it'll all work together nicely, along with the bright tangerine system. So, uh, yeah, if you, if you are a filmmaker or a camera camera owner and you own a red Komodo, this is something that will will uh, play very nicely and uh, will give you the a support on the best PL mount available for that camera. Nice. So it's also a little commercial for us. There you go. 
And that's where people can find you online? <laughs> that is. HotRodCameras.com. <laughs> that's exactly where you can find me. I wasn't going to answer that, but, but you we, forced We me are on. sitting here at Hot Rod Cameras right now. We are. The uh, world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras. Which, we, we which are, it actually says on the podcast is in Hollywood, California, but it's actually in Burbank. You know, Burbank is kind of like the capital of Hollywood, though. It really is. It's like things, I mean, really. Mm, yeah. You know, they're like, like two they're, actual different locations. That are separated by about Four miles, maybe five miles. I'm, and I'm not, I think there's more studios it, here. There's certainly more stages here. It's and just not Hollywood. I mean, it's just a different <laughs> city. That's all. Burbank is its own city. We got Disney. We got Warner I'm Brothers. Not, we I'm got, not saying Burbank is illegitimate or less than Hollywood. It just isn't Hollywood. You know, it is, you know, outside of Los Angeles, it's all the same thing. That's true. Yeah, That's true. I mean, outside of you're the, saying you don't want to call up the British lady and have her I, say I really Burbank. Don't, I don't want to re-record. Just that. say the word Burbank. Could you say Burbank? <laughs> Coming to from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Burbank. Burbank. <laughs> I'll just do it. I'll do it. I'll do it first thing when I wake up. Burbank. <laughs> Thank you. That's exactly, that's exactly right. what I need. And <laughs> so if you need to find me anywhere online, and why would you, uh, <laughs> go to benrockonline.com, just the way it sounds, and uh, feel free to hit me up on uh, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, whatever, or uh, just go there and look at some of my work and, uh, you know, make fun of it. Whatever yeah, whatever, yeah. whatever floats your boat. Yeah, you're going to get that now. They're all going to make fun of it. That's great. Yeah. You know, you can use a little email form and it'll email your japes and hilarious n- notice. Your gifs. Yeah. <laughs> Send this, they'll all go to my manager, so uh, he'll appreciate it. Not gif, jeff. Yeah. Uh, they're both they're both correct. But. Okay, are they? <laughs> yeah, 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 that's what I've heard. So uh, you can find me there. So Ilya, uh, who do we need to thank uh, today? Well, we got to thank avid show listener, Kay Zelatrachi. Yes. Zelatrachi, who did all the, the music for the show and now it turns out is a religious listener to the show. Yeah, is currently listening to us talk about him. Right now. That's got to be weird. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a little, it's, <laughs> it's definitely weird now because we we went spent so long thinking like, he's not going to hear Hey, Kay's. You told us your secret. <laughs> uh, we should also uh, thank Ben Katz, who is actually in the next room, and I got to say hello to him. I know. Isn't that weird? It's so crazy being able to see people again. <laughs> ben Katz in the other room, slaving away right now, cutting cutting together this show. Cutting together this very interview. That's right. Oh, my God. It's making it happen. And then, and then, of course, as always, I, I can't say it enough, Alana Cody, who is uh, the beating heart of this podcast. Without her, uh, we would not be, you know, nearly as prolific. Be- before Alana signed on, it was like one episode every six months. We were slightly better than that. We maybe every two months. It was more like two months. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was that was pretty accurate. And then we had to apologize at the beginning of every podcast. The people who go back and now start binging this from the beginning, they they hear a lot of apologies. Like, oh, really sorry. It was yeah. three months since we, we turned on the microphones. Yeah, we were just uh, we were busy people, but we didn't know that we had a void in our life that could be nonstop filled by doing this every week. That, that's right. We have like the best productivity manager in Alana. She makes sure that we are here doing this instead of like all the other stuff that we would be doing, which would be sleeping or chasing after a three year old. Yeah. Or, you know, what, whatever else sleeping, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I, I don't know what the sleep thing is that you're talking about, but I hear it's awesome. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that just about does it for this episode. Uh, join us next week where you'll hear another interview with someone fascinating or perhaps a show all about war stories where people are talking about 
interesting I mean, things. You're giving up the game now that we I, don't know. I, yeah, <laughs> I kind of know a little. We don't uh, know next week's episode yet. It's going to be one of those two things. It'll it's be either going to be interviews. It's yeah. going to be war stories. Yeah. One of the one of the, one of the those are the only two kind of episodes we do. That's really. that's really all we do. I mean, except Oscar specials, but you know, well, Oscar specials. Yeah, I guess there's a. Occasion. We could do an Oscar special now. That would really. <laughs> it's going to throw some people off pretty yeah. pretty big time. All right. <laughs> all right, we're talking about 2022 Oscars. All only right. seven months have gone by. <laughs> what's what's your pick? All right. Well, anyway, let us wrap this up and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.